You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 1st of February 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippip. Coming up on today's programme, we head to Lebanon, where a new currency exchange rate is the latest attempt to ease the country's economic woes. Then to Italy, where a debate over the country's harsh prison regimes has been reignited. Plus... Fortunately, it was found some 200 kilometres into that journey and only about two metres off the road. So they literally had to search, not quite on hands and knees, but, but pretty close to it. The search is finally over for a radioactive capsule lost in the Australian outback. All that plus the latest business headlines and a flick through the morning's papers too. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. First on today's programme, we head to Lebanon, where the country is adopting a new official exchange rate of £15,000 per US dollar. This marks a 90% devaluation from its current official rate that has remained unchanged for the last 25 years. But what impact will this have on a country that has been in a financial crisis since 2019? Joining me to unpack this is Monaco's Beirut correspondent, Leila Mulana. Alan, welcome to the programme, Leila. It's it's a dramatic devaluation. Could you try to paint a picture of how it's being felt across the Lebanese society? Hi, Marcus. So theoretically, this is a dramatic devaluation. The thing is that it's actually not. So as you said, for 25 years, that has been the official rate. 1,500 Lebanese pounds to the US dollar. However, from the middle of 2019, that started to slip. You know, at the beginning, it slipped by a few thousand. Since then, it has wildly slipped in the street rate, which is, of course, what everybody, normal Lebanese, use. At the moment, the Lebanese pound is trading at 57,000 Lebanese lira to the US dollar. That is a 97% currency devaluation. So what's happening here is that it's been debated for a long time whether the central bank should actually officially devalue the currency. They finally say they are doing so from today, but really it's only going to affect the banks, the money that's held inside the banks. There's a $70 billion financial loss in the financial sector in Lebanon, and they've got to find a way to ameliorate that. Now, they're being given at the moment... um, the head of the Lebanese Central Bank, Riyad Salameh, is saying that he's going to give them uh, five years to do that based on starting with this reevaluation. But really, as I say, it's only going to affect the banks because on the street, people are paying 57,000 Lebanese lira for a dollar. There are five other exchange rates in various parts of the market. So it's not as big a change as it seems. It's more of a move from the government to finally accept that there is no way the currency is going back to what it used to be. And they need to try and find a way slowly over the years to meet somewhere in the middle between the black market rate, which is what people live on, and this fantastical bank government rate that nobody except the banks actually uses now. Was it simply something that had to be done? Did the Lebanese Central Bank really have any alternatives? Well, they could have done it a lot sooner. 
that's one of the issues. So there is there's eleven billion dollars been waiting uh, to help out the Lebanese economy for years now, and there's three billion dollars coming from the IMF that's been waiting, locked up because the IMF says that they want some financial reforms before that happens. And one of those financial reforms is an amelioration of this crazy different number of exchange rates that are being used concurrently in the country. Now the IMF wants that to happen really quickly. The government says that it needs to happen a bit slower because they can't put all that weight immediately on the banks or it'll just get transferred straight away to depositors, which is already happening. Depositors have lost so much of their savings in the banks since this financial crash. So they could have done it sooner. They also could have been a bit more realistic about comparing this rate to, I mean, the, the official government exchange rate that's used in government license exchange shops is 38,000. So it's still far off even that rate. This is one step forward, but really they need to start imposing other financial changes as well. They need to start reducing the massively bloated public sector, removing some of those jobs, which is going to hit hard in an economy where many people are unemployed and the currency is worth so little in terms of salaries. But they've got to start making some other moves as well. This is really just a very initial step, which actually was supposed to happen six months ago and they've delayed it. But at least they are finally admitting that they can't keep on living in this la-la land. You talked about these various exchange rates earlier. How, how does that show in everyday life? For example, when, when you are in Lebanon, you may have your US dollars and you want to get some local currency. How does it work? So essentially, if you have US dollars in Lebanon, you are fine. You are laughing. And what's happened now is US dollars were always used concurrently with Lebanese lira at that fixed exchange rate because the Lebanese lira is a closed currency. So it can only be used inside Lebanon and got hold of inside Lebanon. Now, what's happened is because the exchange rate has fluctuated so wildly over the last few years, a lot of the economy has just become dollarized. So anything that's being imported, any big trades, anything like that, that's already done in dollars already. So that it's not going to be because we went through a stage for a couple of years where every day in the shops, every day in a cafe, the price of something would change because the dollar had changed. Impossible for people to even buy enough food to know what they're going to serve their customers for the next three days because they don't know what it'll be worth tomorrow. So a lot of that has now changed to dollars. It doesn't really affect that anymore. What it affects every day is you don't know how much your money is worth. You don't know when to change your money. If you have dollars, you don't know whether to desperately hold on to them or try and change them all at the point that the currency is at a high or a low, depending on what you want to do with it. It's incredibly unstable. If you don't have US dollars, your life is in the gutter. I mean, it's it's difficult to express quite how horrifying what has happened to Lebanon's middle and working class in the last few years is. The minimum wage now is worth, worth less than $25 a month. And people, anyone working in the public sector is trying to live on that. And that's if they even have a job anymore because there's so much unemployment. It really is horrifying. More than 80% of the public is now living in poverty, severe poverty. People are struggling to feed their children. This has absolutely ravaged the country. And the country's general economic outlook is is gloomy as well. Do you think this currency devaluation may change any of that? It's unlikely this currency devaluation will change any of that at all. Now, as I said, it just affects the banks. It is a good thing that the banks are finally starting to accept that they that they need to accept, uh, you know, this change in the equity that they hold, that it's not going to continue like this. The worry is that they will try and further transfer that onto that loss onto their customers by trying to encourage their customers to take out dollar savings 
in Lebanese lira. That's what's been happening so far. You know, most people have left their money in the banks, hoping the currency will improve over the years. But if you're in a desperate situation, if your family's ill, you have to take that money out and you will lose 80% of your savings in doing so. But if they are able to actually take steps to properly start accepting that loss, rebuilding the banking sector in an honest way, that's not built around this this figmental exchange rate, but that actually is looking towards rebuilding Lebanon's banking sector and financial sector for the future, that will be an improvement. So it really is just baby steps. But the fact that for three and a half years, nobody in the elites has been willing to accept that this is the reality now and finally this is a step in that direction, that is a positive thing. Do you feel optimistic at all about the future? The only thing I feel optimistic about is the Lebanese people. The Lebanese people are absolutely incredible. Uh, They are passionate. They love their country so deeply. They love each other so deeply. I mean, everything that I've seen over the last few years as this country has sunk into the mire has just been Lebanese people supporting each other, helping each other in the face of a government that does very little, a financial sector that has destroyed their lives If anybody can save Lebanon, it's the Lebanese people, but they need help, they deserve help, and they shouldn't have to keep doing this alone without the proper support from their own leaders and from the international community. That was Monaco's Beirut correspondent, Leila Molana Allen. Thank you very much for joining us today. It is 12.09 here in London, 7.09 a.m. in Washington, D.C. Here is Emma Searle with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. Protesters marked the two-year anniversary of Myanmar's military coup today with a silent strike in major cities and rallies overseas. The Southeast Asian country's top generals led a putsch in February 21 after five years of tense power sharing under a quasi-civilian political system created by the military. The United States is reportedly preparing more than $2 billion worth of military aid for Ukraine. It's expected to include longer-range rockets for the first time, plus support equipment for Patriot air defence systems. And Airbus and Qatar Airways are moving towards an agreement to settle a bitter dispute over grounded A350 aeroplanes. The two companies have been fighting in a UK court over the safety impact of flaking paint that exposes corrosion and gaps in the aircraft's lightning protection. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Emma. We cross over to Italy next, where a hunger strike by an anarchist leader has reignited a debate over the use of a prison regime that has been said to be the harshest in Western Europe. Joining me on the line from Milan is Monaco's Europe editor-at-large, Ed Stocker. Ed, good afternoon to you. Could you first tell us about this convicted anarchist leader whose hunger strike has started a debate over the conditions he now has to live in? Yeah, indeed. Alfredo Cospito is the name of the of the prisoner. He, as you say, is a self-declared anarchist. He's been convicted for a couple of major crimes in 2012. He was one of the people to take part in the kidnapping of an executive of a nuclear power company. There was also a bombing of barracks that took place that actually didn't kill anyone. But obviously, there was deemed to be intent there to cause a major incident. And he is, of course, behind bars. And since May of last year, he's been subject to this special prison regime that you were referring to uh, just then, Marcus, that's called the 41 Beast Rule, uh, which is sort of colloquially here in Italy referred to as hard prison. And in this regime, which we'll probably go into in a little bit more detail in a moment, 
prisoners are basically spend most of their time completely alone, uh, essentially in isolation in their own cell. They're, they're, there's no structure to their day apart from a couple of hours that they get to spend in the fresh air. And as a result of this, as a result of the fact that this has been implemented against him, he's been on a hunger strike since October, over 100 days now. He's thought to have lost, lost over 40 kilos. And he was being held in Sardinia on Monday. The government here, which of course is a, a very right wing, some call it far right government, did make a decision to transfer him to the Opera prison here in Milan, where the medical facilities are better suited to, to dealing with the fragile medical condition he is now in, apparently just surviving on water and honey. And as I said before, having lost so much weight. So, Ed, these measures are known, as you mentioned already, under the name 41BIS, and they were originally created to cut off mafia bosses from the outside world. It sounds like they have now become more common, for example, in the case now when they are being used in the case of this anarchist leader. Can you tell us more about what this leader has gone through already and what the arguments are for for using these measures in the case of him? Yeah, let's just give you a bit of background of that. Uh, the 41 bis, in its current guise anyway, it was amended in the early 1990s, 1992 to be exact, after two very famous magistrates in Sicily were killed in separate incidents by the mafia in that year, Falcone and Borsellino. And essentially, this 41 bis was brought in to control uh mafia uh, the leaders, I guess, who had been imprisoned and to stop them essentially being able to continue to exercise criminal control uh, from within a prison. And so the 41 base looked to limit their ability to communicate both within the prison with other prisoners who might be able to carry messages for them and, of course, with the outside world. And so this 41 base um, severely restricts uh, any sort of uh, communication and and mixing uh, with anyone. Uh, so just to very briefly tell you, they basically spend all day in the cell. They have a couple of hours where they can uh, uh, get some fresh air and they have a maximum of four people that they can, four prisoners that they can mix with during that time. Uh, they only have one phone call a month and it's recorded. They're only allowed to meet with a family me- member, obviously separated by glass once a month as well. And so this is all, as I said, you know, before to try and control any sort of criminal activity. Uh, Now, there are 728 detainees under this regime in Italy. A lot of them, it has to be said, are uh, uh, in prison for mafia related crimes. But there are some who have been convicted on other charges. And in fact, the list of those charges is actually uh, that you can be on this uh, 41 bis uh, four have gone up over the years. Uh, it does also include local and international terrorism, and Cospita would fall under that. Now, the strange thing uh, in this case, and the reason he's been placed on it, was that he was writing from prison to sort of urge anarchists to keep going with armed struggle. But these weren't covert messages he was sending secretly. He was doing it with permission. He was writing in anarchist publications. And so 
for people who don't think this should be implemented for him, there's a wondering why is he being placed under a special regime when he was writing with permission in official publications, what perhaps authorities could have done instead would be simply to have limited his ability to be able to publish and send things to the outside world without placing him uh, in these very strict conditions uh, that have been criticised by lots of international players, including Amnesty International, who has expressed what they've said, concern uh, by the violation of, of Alfredo Cospito's human rights. So strong words from Amnesty International, and they're not the only ones to think this so-called hard prison implemented by Italy may be at times abused. It's just finally, do you think something will have to change? Well, it's interesting because we have this far-right government with Giorgia Meloni, and she's really made it uh, a hallmark of her uh, government so far, although she's been cautious in many aspects. She's taken this sort of hard line on law and order to, to borrow an Exonian and also Trumpian term. Uh, you know, she introduced a law banning raves when she came into power, which some thought was a, a slightly odd move. She flew to Sicily after the recent capture of, of mafia top man Matteo Messina Donato. And here as well, we're seeing that the government is taking quite a hard line. They, they say they don't basically uh, want to be dictated to by terrorists. And the fact there have also been a string of incidents by anarchists around the world as a result of this, including a, a, a bomb in a car, an empty car uh, in Greece. It's sort of they're using that as justification that acts of violence are taking place. So this 41 bis needs to be in place. There'll be a strong debate uh, and we'll have to see this, uh, how the state of, of health of Cospito changes in the coming weeks now that he's been transferred to Milan. Uh, but for the moment anyway, Marcus, uh, the government, while saying that uh, people like Cospito need to receive the medical attention they deserve, they seem to be remaining firm on the need for the 41 base for now. Monaco's at Stoker in Milan. Thank you very much for joining us here on The Briefing. A radioactive capsule that was lost in the Australian outback for more than two weeks has been found. The 8mm by 6mm capsule which fell from a truck that was travelling from a Rio Tinto mine site in the Pilbara region of West Australia to Perth was found south of the town of Newman. Well, joining me for more on this new story is Karen Middleton, the Saturday paper's chief political correspondent. Welcome to the programme, Karen. Could you first try to explain how this capsule was found. Yeah, I mean, it is bizarre, Marcus. The capsule was found because, well, the capsule was found by a manual search, basically. A whole lot of people had to get out on the highway. And as you said, it's a 1,400-kilometre stretch from that mine site in northwest of Western Australia to Perth. They needed equipment that would detect radiation, and they scoured the area. And fortunately, it was found some 200 kilometres into that journey and only about two metres off the road. So they literally had to search, not quite on hands and knees, but but pretty close to it. How big of a relief has this been, for example, for this mining firm? How dangerous was that capsule? 
It was very dangerous. It was made of cesium, contained cesium-137, which is a radioactive material. And the advice was that it would cause acute radiation sickness if anyone picked it up. They said it was the equivalent of having 10 x-rays in an hour. That's the sort of impact it would have on the body. And of course, everybody was concerned about it because it was so small. It was only six millimetres by eight millimetres in size. So really tiny and very hard to see. So it's quite incredible that they've actually found it. And in fact, the authorities today were describing it as a a needle in a haystack success. Without going too much into technical details, can you try to explain how that capsule was being used? Yeah, I think there are a lot of people trying to work it out. So the capsule was inside some kind of gauge, a piece of mining equipment, and that was being transported from the mine site to a storage facility on Perth's outskirts. Now, it appears that what's happened is that possibly the vibrations in the truck have dislodged this this gauge and it's come apart or broken apart and the covering that contained the capsule has broken. The capsule seems to have rolled out and as it happens, a bolt was missing from a part of the truck that meant that it had a hole large enough for the capsule to drop through and they think that that's how it it ended up on the road or just on the side of the road. Well, I guess it's good that it was at least noticed that this capsule was missing so there were some kind of security checks at least but whose fault was this and what has the aftermath been like? Well, this is an excellent question. It did take them a while. They think this occurred sometime after the 10th of January and it was only made public on the 25th. So there were a couple of weeks where there was a bit of scrambling going on in the background, I think. And it took six days of searching to find it. There is a bit of uh, questioning going on, a bit of finger pointing. One thing that's come to light as a result of this is that there are very, very small penalties in the state of Western Australia for breaches of radiation protection rules like this. I think the fine is only something like $1,000, which seems ridiculous given how dangerous this item was. So there's now a review of the law when it comes to the security of radioactive material and there'll be a full investigation into exactly how this happened and how to make sure it never happens again. And now finally, Karen, this has been a huge news story internationally. Can you tell us how it's been reported in Australia and how much people have been talking about this? Well, it's funny, actually, Marcus. It emerged as a sort of a quirky story on Sunday night, and then I think people realised just how serious it was, and it it turned into a much bigger story over the last few days. So it's been in every news bulletin, sort of have they found it, where are they looking? People who lived in the towns nearby heard about it and started to worry that it might have gone further afield and ended up in their town, and people were talking about the half-life, the fact that it could remain radioactive for 300 years. So it has got a lot of attention, and there is a lot of relief tonight to know that it's been found and is now secure. I bet. Karen Middleton there. Thank you very much for joining us today. Monocle's February issue celebrates places that work, providing a roll call of appealing outposts that will inspire and encourage you for the new year ahead. From a top transport system to a seemly city hall or cultural HQ. Elsewhere in the issue, we meet the perky Brazilian coffee company that has crossed to Europe with ease and visit the car plant in Morocco that's revving up the nation's commitment to renewables. And then, as usual, there are reviews of the best hotels, restaurants and travel hotspots to pack your diary with throughout 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's February issue today or subscribe to get instant access online.
Welcome back. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. I am Markus Hippi. It's 21.23 in Tokyo, 14.23 in Helsinki and 12.23 here in London. We continue now with the latest business headlines. I'm joined by Bloomberg's UN Pots. UN, welcome to the program again. You have an update on Eurozone inflation today. Hi, Marcus. Yeah, it's the piece of economic data we are all watching. Inflation in the euro area came in at 8.5% in the year to January. The 20 countries which share the euro saw uh, inflation less than expected, actually quite a long way, quite a a big gap from economists' estimates. They expected uh, 8.9%. So that is good news. We've had a reasonable amount of good news on inflation uh, from various economies over the last uh, few weeks. Uh, the underlying picture is not so good, though. Underlying inflation, that excludes volatile items like energy and food. Well, that remains at an all-time high of 5.2%. But it was uh, the third month we saw inflation retreat uh, across uh, the eurozone. So that is a useful piece of data for the ECB uh, to weigh up. Now, the uh, European Central Bank is going to be making a, a rate decision tomorrow, uh, along with the Bank of England. This evening, we have uh, the world's most important central bank, the Federal Reserve. Uh, they're going to be making their rate decision. So we've got a big week of uh, uh, policy uh, announcements coming from the world's central banks. The data in the Eurozone will probably embolden more dovish officials at the ECB who are starting to push for an easing in the pace of rate hikes. Remember that the Eurozone was quite late to the party when it comes to increasing interest rates. The Eurozone economy are rather more fragile than that of the United States. Some of the more hawkish ECB officials, though, they're going to worry about rising wages uh, and they're going to be focused on that sticky core inflation, which doesn't seem to be uh, coming down. It is energy which is driving down the headline measure. And of course, energy prices uh, can be volatile. So it's uh, perhaps best not to rely on them to keep going down. Uh, data this week, though, pretty positive for the euro area, suggesting that the uh, the eurozone will dodge a recession. There was lots of talk a few months ago that we were heading into uh, a nasty downturn across Europe. And it looks like at the moment things are looking a little bit better. Uh, manufacturing is recovering and unemployment is still at a record low in December. So uh, the uh, economic data out of the US, out of the uh, eurozone, pretty reasonable so far. And looking at what's happening in the UK, obviously, the rise in the cost of living is one of the reasons why we're seeing a huge day of strikes in Britain. Yeah, a big day of coordinated strike action in the UK. It's actually the biggest day of strikes in 10 years. As many as 475,000 union members are on strike today. Of course, we've been seeing industrial action uh, in the UK across a number of sectors and across a number of months. The rail strike has been dragging on since the summer. Uh, train drivers are out today. Uh, a host of train lines not running any services at all. Lots of big stations in London completely uh, closed. We've got civil servants, including uh, border patrol workers, uh, also out on strike today. And uh, for the first time, teachers are joining the strike action. Uh, and I think schools being closed, uh, the teachers union says that about 85% of schools will either be completely shut or partially shut. I think that will really hit home to a number of people because uh, whilst uh, the NHS strikes have been pretty shocking, most people, thank goodness, are healthy, so they may not have been touched by the NHS strikes. Most people don't take the train to work. Most people drive to work. But lots of people, millions of people have children. And if the children can't go to school, that is very disruptive for parents. So I think the uh, teacher strike is really going to hit home. 
As to the uh, political damage for the government, so far, uh, I don't think it has really uh, hit home too much. But uh, the government will be keen to knock this on the head. But there is not much money to throw around and uh, no signs of these strikes are being settled anytime soon. Thanks for this update. That was Bloomberg's Ewan Potts joining us here on Monocle 24. And finally, on today's programme, we are lucky enough to be joined live in the studio by Monocle's very own Tom Webb. Tom, you have some interesting stories for us today. Quite a few newspapers. Shall we start with the New York Times? I do. I have four. We're going to rattle through. We'll start with something more serious at the front page of the New York Times. Two of the papers, sorry, they're the, physically, they're the biggest papers that we have. Um, on the front page is a picture of Baghdad, and it's called a hotter, browner Baghdad. This is because green space there has contracted from 28% to 12% in just 20 years, and this is driven by a serious housing shortage. It's 7 million population in the city there. That's one of the largest in the Arab world. This problem is being compounded by money laundering because money laundering is is used as the greatest tool in property investment, and all of these properties are bought with cash. They're all being built illegally, and the government is turning a blind eye. The importance of green space is the fact that shade it's five degrees cooler under it, but also shade deflects all of this heat from the concrete and the metal that absorbs it and then radiates it. So a city that's already 50 degrees is going to look like a lot hotter this summer. Let's continue to Japan then. You've been looking at what the Asahi Shimbun has been writing about, about the underground system. Yes, so similar story. We were looking in Berlin how they were cutting costs and this was switching the heating off and encouraging travellers to wear more clothes. In Japan, they are getting rid of Wi-Fi services, and this is because of tourist numbers, not commuters. The the mass rollout of Wi-Fi on trains was driven by the Olympics. The Olympics was a bit of a flop because of the pandemic, and so there is no need to have Wi-Fi for tourists. So we actually quite like this idea. We like the idea of wrapping up on the Berlin subway, and we like the idea that Wi-Fi will be dropping because we love travelling with our internet, don't we? We don't want to hear from our bosses, do we, Marcus? No, I think it's great to have a break every now and then when you can actually focus on something else than just trying to sort what's going on in your inbox. Um, what's your experience? As you said, you quite like this idea, but I think there are many people in Japan who are going to be quite upset that the Wi-Fi is, is no longer. They will be. Japan has a very, very long average commuting time, and if you're working on a laptop, you do really need Wi-Fi, particularly if you're working on your way into work. So what do you do if you have a long work commute but can't access the internet? Me, personally, I read the free newspaper, but I never pitch a story from it, Marcus, because you wouldn't like that. Exactly. We have our quality sources. Talking about which, we have the Daily Telegraph next. Yes, so this is actually page eight, but I love the story, so I had to flick through it. Um, it's, it's not front page worthy, but the idea is that feathers are flying in this Twitter battle. There is a bird charity in the UK that has been locked out after tweeting a lot about the word woodcock, which hmm. is a rare British bird. Elon Musk has waded in, calling the story ironic, but he hasn't fixed the issue. And it's such a problem for the charity because this is a very, very busy time for them. They have 115,000 followers and they rely on Twitter for donations. It's winter watch season. Um, it's, it's odd to me because Woodcock isn't the rudest bird name.
What is then? Uh, some of my favourite. We've got the horned screamer. Uh, we have the fluffy-backed tit babbler, a European shag, a rough-faced shag, and my favourite, the hoary puff leg. <laughs> have you seen many, many, many horned screamers or woodcocks in your life, Tom? There have been a few European shags in my back garden uh, this spring. Uh, anyway, a- enough of that silly story. There is an even sillier one. You have a sillier story this time from from South Korea. Yeah, so this is in the Korean Times. Um, Marcus, did you make any lockdown purchases that you regret? Uh, a bread maker, a hot tub. No, I didn't actually. I was I was being quite quite savvy. Well, in did South- you? No, no, of course not. I, I kept hold of my pennies, unlike South Koreans who, the lonely men sidled up with sex robots to keep from loneliness during lockdown. Um, now that they're free to mingle and date with lockdown eased, they are finding it very difficult to dispose of these sex robots. So there's no public disposal system in Seoul, for example, for getting rid of your sex robots? No, there are aren't. So what they're doing is they are putting them in the trash. And this is causing a lot of phone calls to the police, uh, the rescue services, with people thinking that they're dead bodies. There is a quote here from a bin man, if I can quickly read it out. He says, and there are lots of stories like this, I saw a bit of hair in the trash pile and pulled it out, assuming it to be a wig. What I actually got was a beheaded woman. Can you imagine how much that frightened me? The owner had dismembered the doll, wrapped the body parts separately, and the head wasn't wrapped tight enough. When I saw the head roll out, my heart stopped. My hands are still shivering. And it is not just in Korea. In Thailand, a lot of sex dolls are washing up on beaches, and that is causing all sorts of chaos with the security services. Is anyone coming up with any solutions to this? Surely someone is trying to find a way of addressing this issue. The the article uh, sort of ends with a very serious warning that those wishing to buy sex dolls, please think about how to properly dispose of them. However, there is no online or YouTube tutorial about how to dispose of a sex doll safely. I think there is a gap in the market for that kind of advice. I agree. Monocle's Tom Whip there. Thank you very much for joining us today. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Paige Reynolds. Our researcher was Andre Nikolai Pamintuan and our studio manager was Nora Huell. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. That is at midday here in London, 7am in New York City. I am Mark Hippie. Goodbye and thanks for listening.